Proverbs chapter 18. You find that chapter, if you would look up at me. I know you're in place then. We'll be coming to that. In September, in September 8th of 1900, the deadliest natural storm, deadliest occurrence from a natural storm in the history of the United States happened. It was Galveston Island, Texas. Galveston Island had been thought to be impervious to hurricane effect where it was. In fact, the chief meteorologist who was stationed there at Galveston at that time, a um, <clears throat> man, uh, first name of Isaac, Isaac Klein, he had said and agreed with those who said that uh, Galveston could never suffer a direct hit from a major hurricane because of the uh, way the, the land was and all that sort of thing. They were proven very, very wrong in September of 1900. Uh, storms had been building. Many people had ignored the signs that things were getting worse, even ignoring the telltale hurricane uh, clouds that were building, reports that had come in from the West Indies of a tropical depression, then tropical storm that had went through that direction, the Caribbean area then, and then had went around the southern end of Florida. It had passed through there, not very strong, but when it hit the Gulf of Mexico, the conditions were just right to build it into what today would be classified as a, a high-end Category 4 hurricane. And it came in and hit directly on Galveston Island. At the time when this hurricane hit Galveston, the highest point in Galveston, which was not equipped with a seawall and other things, but the highest point was just around nine feet above sea level. What came in on the 145 mile an hour plus winds of that storm, or actually in the center of the storm as such things do, is, the, uh, is a uh, storm surge. And that storm surge was anywhere, they figure, from 12 to 18 feet. So the entire island got inundated at not less than 8 feet of water throughout the island. Now a storm surge, if you're not as familiar with it, is not just a single wave that comes in, but it is a very large area of ocean which has risen because of the disproportionately low air pressure above it in, in, that, in that storm. And the whole mass of sea of several square miles comes in or many square miles comes in just as one large body of water and uh, the loss of life was horrific at the time that this happened Galveston Island was called considered they said it was the Wall Street of the South it rivaled one other American city with having the highest per capita uh, wealth of any city in the United States at that time uh, many, many very wealthy people lived there. There was all sorts of banking and industry was starting to happen. And it was considered that it was going to become the major port of the South. In fact, after this uh, hurricane and the total devastation that resulted and also the awareness of how vulnerable the island could be, then the port, the centralization of the port activity went up to Houston instead of, instead of Galveston. 
At the time of the hurricane in 1900, the, uh, the city of Galveston had a population of around 38,000 people. That's about how many residents were on that island. I myself personally have been on the island a good number of times. When I lived in Houston, we would go down to Galveston. And uh, how many of you have ever been to Galveston Island? See that, Brother Dan? I thought you might have. When you go to Galveston Island, you are going to be crossing, obviously it's an island, but you're going to be crossing water a while before you get to it by any of the routes to go down there. Obviously, it's an island, you have to cross water, but there's low areas where the, the, now the highways are built up around it. Part of the problem, and, and there was a, such a devastating loss of life, was during, when the hurricane came in with force, and some people thought, we, we need to flee at this moment. There was a ship that had been anchored alongside the island, and it tore loose, a larger ship. And the winds drove it through the three trestleways that, that uh, connected the island back to the mainland. It just took them out. So there was no way to get off the island at that point. The, uh, the island had about 38,000 people. On any given day, there were people who came for sightseeing and that sort of thing. And uh, oddly, well, not really oddly, if you understand the mindset, I kind of share the mindset so it doesn't seem odd to me. There were people who went down there just because there was a big storm. They went to see what that was like. In fact, I went down to Galveston like that one time. Um, but went to see and feel the ferocity of that storm coming in. And uh, they got there. The storm hit. The estimates, no matter where you study and how many books and such you read about it, uh, the estimates run very, very low range is 6,000 dead on Galveston. High range is 12,000. The number you're going to hit most time is around 8,000 people. Now that's 8,000 people and you have an island with a population base of 38,000. On any given day, there were other people there for commerce reasons or whatever. But you're talking about a massive percentage of loss of life. If you read detailed uh, descriptions of, of the storm and things that happened, the winds were so ferocious as they came in and were sustaining at 145 plus mile an hour that the slate roofs, which were very common, were tearing off. And those slate roofs, those slates were flying. A good number of people decapitated by these things as they were just hurtling uh, through the streets and people were trying to get to safety. The buildings obviously could not take the tide coming in on them. Uh, over 7,000 structures destroyed upon an island that is not that large. And uh, the loss of, of commerce and life was appalling. So bad was the loss of life and so many dead bodies, they put them on barges afterwards, tried to take them out to sea, and, uh, but they floated back in and they ended up having to make funeral pyres and, and burn them. And it was just a very, very horrific situation. In the mercantile building, some of the wealthiest men and most powerful men of the city had had gathered and they were they were they'd had dinner and they were playing cards and they were saying oh we're we're fine this is such a strongly built building in that building alone the uh the wind hit in such a way it, it, it pushed out the walls and the entire uh second floor came down on the first floor and, and just crushed everyone that was in there uh with that and a lot a lot of details some some amazing events of people surviving in ways that were just uh uh, beyond mind-boggling with it. But there was a particular thing that happened with a railroad train that had arrived. It had come in from Beaumont, Texas, and it had come in in what was called the Bay and Interstate uh, Railroad Line, 
And that train had come in. It had two passenger cars and an engine to it. 95 people total on this train. And they came in as the storm was building. And as they got further onto the island and were coming onto the island, it was it just the intensity was picking up so quickly. And what happened, that particular line would come along on what was called the Bolivar Peninsula. And that little peninsula that was, of course, separated from the mainland, but then except for the place where it joined at the base, it was separated uh, from the main island uh, by a shipping channel. That peninsula at the end of it had a ferry system large enough for them to move these cars, these passenger cars onto, and take them across to another part of the island. Also at the end of that uh, peninsula is the Bolivar Lighthouse. Uh, and it uh, was built there with an iron frame inside of it. At that time, one of only four of those in the state of Texas. And the train came in, and as the train was coming in and towards the point where they were going to be making the exchange to move these passenger cars onto this large ferry, the winds were picking up, the surf was picking up. In fact, part of the uh, tracks were partially underwater and the water was running very rapidly. And of course, that was quite terrifying because of washout. They're afraid of that. And, and uh, as they came out, they saw the, the uh, ferry coming across and the captain tried on a number of occasions to get the ferry to the dock where they could do what they were going to do as far as transferring things. But the wind and the sea drove him back and drove him back. And finally, he disengaged. He saw that there was going to be a disaster. And he pulled out of there. When they realized that, the engineer said, we're going to go back to Beaumont. And so put the train in reverse, started backing up. But the water was rising so rapidly. The storm surge itself had not hit yet, but it was still rising so rapidly that pretty soon the train could not go any further. The, uh, the train was situated in such a way that the north side of the train, they said it sounded like about 100,000 men with ball-peen hammers were slamming on that side. And the south side windows, the way that particular part of the track was, they said they could, they could see it was clear, and they could see the waves, and they could see what was going on. And it was terrifying. The train was beginning to shudder, and uh, 95 people on there. And from their position, they could see the Bolivar Lighthouse now a quarter mile away because they'd been backing up and then the train went running. There were, most of the people on that train said, well, this train's heavy, this is secure, this is something that can withstand the storm. Of course, nobody knew what they were facing and there hadn't been a storm of that magnitude within the history of those who were there. And uh, so they, were, they said, we'll stay with the train. Well, there was a fellow by the name of John H. Poe, P-O-E, and he was a member of the State uh, Education Board of Louisiana. Um, he, he was a uh, native of Louisiana, and he had been on that train that had come from Beaumont, Texas. And uh, he was there, and he looked at it, and by his account later, he said the way that the train shimmied, the way the water was coming up, he, he did not feel safe, and he decided to go for that lighthouse a quarter mile away, even though he was going to have to go through water, and it was a very dangerous proposition. There were nine other passengers that decided to go with him. The 85 others stayed on the train. And John Poe and those nine other uh, um, um, people went, and they uh, uh, headed for the lighthouse. 
It was quite an arduous trek. It was very dangerous. But they managed to get through. And as they got there at the, at the uh, Bolivar Lighthouse, they got the door open and went inside. And he said when he stepped inside, he looked up the circular staircase, which rises almost 100 feet inside there. And he said all he could see were people on the stairs. At that point, conflicts a little according to what account you read of it, but there were somewhere between 125 and maybe 175 people in that lighthouse when John Poe and the nine people with him made it in. The, all those who were there before them had been at the, uh, the keeper's house, the lighthouse keeper, man C.H. Claiborne was his name. He, he, had had the, uh, uh, he had had a very sturdy house, obviously, beside the lighthouse, but he had realized it was full of people looking for a safe place. But he realized that that was in danger also, and they had rigged a rope system to the lighthouse because they had women and children with them, and they had taken everybody from Mr. Claiborne's house, where he was as the lighthouse keeper, over to the lighthouse with the men holding on and carrying women, carrying children on their back, holding on to a rope to go through the tide and got over to the lighthouse. John Poe and the nine that came in with him were the last people to get in that lighthouse. Around them, everything ended up total devastation and ruin, including the caretaker's houses were washed away. The number of lost and dead were staggering. In that area, out in the Bolivia Bolivia Peninsula, out in that area, it was just completely devastated. It just wiped it clean. But inside that lighthouse, almost 200 people, at the very minimum, 155, 160 people, went through the storm. The water started hitting and it came in under the door and came up far enough everybody had to climb the stairs and it came up about 10 to 13 feet inside the lighthouse. But it shuddered and it shook and the waves hit it and the surge hit it. But the lighthouse withstood that storm. And by the way, many others that came after it. And that lighthouse proved to be the thing that saved all these lives. Everyone who made it in to that lighthouse survived. Say, well, what of those on the train? All of them were killed. Some were never found. Because when the surge came in, that train was just washed away as if it were nothing. And so those who made it into the lighthouse were the ones who ended up being saved from the wrath of the storm. Look now in Proverbs 18. Look in verse 10. It says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. I want to take just a few minutes and speak to you on the subject of get to the tower. Get to the tower. Look at the verse there. It says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The name is a mark or a memorial of individuality. When we speak of a name, we are speaking of an individual. When we say this person, it's a mark of individuality. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. It's the name of the Lord. Well, one way which He is known is Jesus. One way He's known is Savior. One way He's known is Creator. One way He's known is Almighty God. 
He's known as the Everlasting Father. He's known as the Prince of Peace. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Why? It's individual. I'm not a person of faith. I reject that title. I'm a person who has faith in the name of the living God. I am a person who has faith in Jesus Christ as He is revealed in the words of the Scripture. Not just a person of faith. Nothing. Faith in what? You might mean a God like the G in the middle of the Mason symbol, which is not the God of the Bible. You might mean any sort of deity. But I believe in the God who is revealed in the words of Scripture. The righteous run into it. What? The name of the Lord. It's Jesus we believe on. In our Sunday school lesson and adult Bible lessons this morning that we enjoyed, we found that Paul, he said, of course, he had said when, when Jesus uh, uh, stopped him there on the road to Damascus and where the light was so bright that he could see it at noonday, he said, Who art thou, Lord? Didn't know who this was. Well, whoever it was had a lot of power. And so he, he said, Who art thou, Lord? And then Jesus said, I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. And his next time he says, Lord, it means something different. It's the same word, but it means something different. He said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? He had run into the name of the Lord in that strong tower and was safe. Then you look at it, it says it's a strong tower. That's security. That's boldness. Two other messages I almost preached today, and the Lord, I believe, took me to the two I preached today. I had others ready. But the... uh, one of the other ones was why I'm glad to know that I'm saved forever. That's just the title of it. Just have a time with it. Talk to you about why eternal life is eternal life. Why everlasting life means what it says. It's a neat message. Why? Get to the tower. Strength. That man, John H. Poem, that man, an educator, that man who made a right judgment there, When he went into that tower, he was not a man. When he went into that lighthouse, he was not a man who said, that's going to stand for sure, and this train's not going to stand, and and I know this is right, because even after he got in there, by his own testimony, after those nine got in with him, after the door was shut, after they started crowding up onto the stairs as the water rose some, he said many times during the night, while that lighthouse shuddered, and when the storm shrieked with a sound indescribable, he wondered, did I make the right choice? Is this whole thing going to come down on us? Would we have been safer out there? And then the morning light revealed that he had made the only choice that could have saved his life. And those who followed him, those who said to the majority, the 85 who stayed behind, no, we think this is right. Those who ran into that tower, those who went there, they were the ones who had stability, security, and blessing with it. Then the Bible says, right, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Tower is an elevated place. Kind of been misty and, and messy all day. I told my wife, I said, this is awesome. I said, I, I knew this was one of the alternatives for me to preach on. And this isn't what drove me to do it, but I'm glad for it. I thought, what a great night to preach about the, you know, a hurricane. Looks like we could have one outside. And this afternoon, I was pointing out, although it was a misty type of rain, the wind was such at the house, you could see it, just sheets of it going by, sheets of it going by. And uh, can you imagine the spindrift 
Can you imagine the type of rain and the type of thing going on in an approaching hurricane of that magnitude? About the only thing they could see was that lighthouse. And by the way, the light had quit working on it. You say, why does that happen? Because the kerosene house got blown away. And the light could only last as long as the fuel they had up in it. They couldn't resupply it. But though the light wasn't there, the safety was. And when the name of the Lord is a strong tower, it's elevated. That's why it's important we lift Him up. It's important we tell people how good God is. It's important why we tell them why Jesus came, who He is and why He came. Lift Him up. He said, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw them in unto me. Why? An elevated place in that storm. First song we sang, a shelter in the time of storm. It's exactly what we need with that. Then it not only speaks of an elevated place, a place of safety, but it's identifiable from a distance. Say, why do you believe? I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe He is God and man. I believe that He is the one and only Savior of the world. I believe in Him as life, and life was the light of men. I believe that as many as believe on Him, He gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on His name. I believe it's, it's an elevated thing. It's identifiable. John Poe, he didn't look out there and say, well, there's something out there. Maybe we can get to it. He said it's a lighthouse. Perhaps he understood why lighthouses were built. Perhaps he understood some of the integrity that would be inherent to a lighthouse. I don't think he just made a wild speculative decision to jump off of a train into at least waist-deep water that had a strong enough current to drag you away and try to get a quarter of a mile. He said, well, a quarter of a mile is not very far. I imagine it was very far under the circumstances in which they were trying to get there. Plus, who knows what else was coming in that water and being driven in it. Then also, the tower gives you perspective. The righteous run into the tower and are safe. Why? Because it gives you perspective. <laughs> what does that mean? You get in the tower of God's righteousness, it gives you a perspective on life. It lets you understand things. It lets you cope with things. It lets you be victorious in things that normally you wouldn't be. Why? Because you have a proper perspective of what was going on. Then look at the verse again. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous... Look at the phrase. What's he do? Runneth. Not ambling over to it. Not strolling and getting there when they can. Running. Why? With all the speed and all the alacrity that you can do it. Getting there. Getting there in a hurry. And you'll talk to people, and I've talked to people who obviously have had some conviction on their soul about their sin and their need for Christ. And you talk to them and they say, well, one of these days, no, run to the tower. Well, sometime I'm going, no, run to the tower. Run to the tower. Get there as quickly as you can get there. Why? Because he did. Can you imagine these nine people? They couldn't run in that condition. But can't you imagine they were striving with every bit of energy? Can't you imagine that every moment was precious to them? Can't you imagine that however long it took seemed like a lot longer? You have a hurricane bearing down on you. You have the sea coming up on you. You're out there and there's nothing between you and it. The elements are hitting you. You know you can get washed away. The train you were just on was shaking back and forth. That, 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 would, that would hurry you along. You know, 
uh, in the scripture, the Roman ruler said to Paul, he said, when I have a convenient season, I will hear thee again. Oh, Felix, that's what he said. No, 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 uh, no record of him ever, ever turning. In fact, the record seems to indicate otherwise because he later, willing to do the Jews a favor, he kept Paul in prison for two more years. What does that mean? That means he kept on compromising. Sad, another one said, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. The common thing among those, those Roman rulers that encountered the strong witness of the gospel through the Apostle Paul, the common thing about them was they got under conviction, they pulled up short, and they, they started doing political calculations. Say, so, well, I'm not a politician. Everyone's a little bit of a politician. That's how you operate with people. But people who don't, do not have political office make political calculations. What will this cost me? What will somebody think? Oh, I know how my family's always talked about church people. <laughs> I don't know. What the fellas that we're going to say? Man, what's one of the other young people in our church going to think if I go for it, if I accept the Lord? Same reason some of you don't come and pray. You're scared to death. So somebody's going to say, if you ask them to move out of the way, so you can come, so you can come and kneel your knee before the Lord when you know you're wanting to. These kind of considerations. Well, later on. No, not later on. His first name is Chip. He's a young man I was in high school or school with throughout school. He's a year behind me. He's in the same age, same grade as my wife was. And he was a close friend. After I got saved, I immediately started talking to my friends about the Lord Jesus. My friend Mike got saved. And Chip... Well, he was, he was listening. He went to a United Methodist church in our town and that was not a church which at least from my generation forward had not preached the gospel. They had what they called church. It was nothing more than a social club and you couldn't find the gospel in there if you had a flashlight looking for it. And so, Chip, he, he was getting our conviction. I was talking to him about the Lord. We were talking. Teenage guys doing things together. One day I was talking to him. It was just me and Chip. The other guys weren't around. Usually he had Aaron and Mike with us and we were running around as a group. And I remember Chip being so much Aaron conviction. I remember his heart. He just, he's like, I, I, I know, I need, to, I need to really think about this. And it just God was working. I was excited for it. Next time I saw him, I started to talk to him more. He just blew it off. A couple more times later, he was the same way. Very, very dismissive. Like you knew the subject was over. So I asked him, you know, teenage guys together, and you're real straightforward about stuff. I said, what's going on? I said, what's the deal? And he said, oh, I went and talked to my preacher. I thought, oh, no. He said, I went and talked to my preacher. I said, actually, what happened? Gratis, Ohio. He said, I went and talked to my preacher and said, well, my friends is talking to me about Jesus. I've, I've been concerned about this. And here's what that so-called preacher said to my friend looked at my friend and said to the teenage boy, coming to, come to him with a heart open like that, and said, ah, you got a lot of time for that. Don't worry about that. You can take care of that later in life. By that door closed. Run to it. Run to it. If you're here tonight and don't know the Lord, your future is hell if you don't get saved. Run to the tower. Run to the tower. In the context of what the verse says, the righteous runneth in. 
If you know the Lord and you're putting your trust somewhere else, if you're putting in your riches, your strength, your family, anything, run to the tower. You get somewhere that's safe. Run to it. Scripture says there, and we finish on, it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it. Look at those beautiful last three words. What's the condition? And is safe. I love it. Now here's the thought with that. If John Poe, if those with him, if any of the other, at least 125, possibly more that were in that tower, if they had run to that tower and cling to the outside, I've seen pictures of the ball of a lighthouse. If they had got a hold of its masonry structure, if they had held to the railing near the door, if they had said, here's the tower, I'm going to hold on to it as best I can, they would have as surely been washed away and destroyed as the 85 that were on the train. Because, listen to me, there is no safety on the outside of the tower. The safety does not come from the endangered person strength being able to hold to the tower. The safety comes from the strength and the integrity of the tower and thus being inside. Run to it. Troubles of life come, run to it. Fears come, run to it. Doubts come, run to it. Weakness comes, run to the tower. Don't say, well, later on I'm going to go, or I'm going to talk to the Lord about that later, or I'm going to try to figure out what God's doing. You get to the tower. Why? Because there's many a deadly storm that may be approaching. And your only safe place is going to be inside. Let me pray with you tonight. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Your admonitions You give us. In it. And I pray that tonight we'll have sense enough to run to You. And God, when the storms rise and when the winds shriek and when it seems all hope's gone, may we look to You and run to Your name. Find our strength in You, please. God, if I've spoken in the ears of someone who doesn't know You as their Savior tonight, may they have sense enough to listen to the voice of conviction. God, may they be terrified of not having You. May it be real to them and may they come to You. Bless, please, this invitation for your own purpose and honor, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Why don't you come tonight? Why don't you come tonight?